0: It's Friday, the 4th of November, and this is your weekly briefing. I'm David Wilder, and I'm joined once again by Neil Shearing, our group chief economist. Hi, Neil. Hi, David. So another week, another load of central bank actions to wade through. The Fed's obviously the big one. We'll get to that in a sec. But first, I wanted to ask you about other decisions we've had and what they might point to. There's been a growing number of DM central banks in recent weeks that have been voting to slow the pace of rate hikes, starting with the Reserve Bank of Australia. Then last week, we had the Bank of Canada downshifting to a 50 basis point move. And this week, the Norgas Bank did 25 basis points instead of the 50 that most expected. Other banks have been signaling that they're preparing to go slower
1: on rate hikes, but these banks have actually done it. So, so why them and, and why now? I think a lot of it comes down to what's happening in domestic economies, and in particular in housing markets and the vulnerabilities there. The story of this tightening cycle so far has been that central banks pretty much everywhere in the world have been caught behind the curve and have been desperately scrabbling to, to catch up. And that has meant the most coordinated and aggressive tightening cycle for the last 30 or 40 years. They've had common inflation shocks and they've responded in a common way. But a number of countries have heightened housing vulnerabilities. We've written a lot about this on our global economic service over the past six months or so. And it just so happens that three of those economies are Norway, Canada, and Australia, some of the most overvalued housing markets in the world. So I think we're starting to get to the phase of the tightening cycle where central banks are still concerned about inflation, certainly, but they're also becoming increasingly cognizant of the risks around very aggressive, and rapid tightening. And that's what started to play itself out in Australia, Canada, Norway, and the moves we've seen over the past week or so.
0: So these banks have also fueled this idea in markets about pivoting you just alluded to. I spoke with Jenny McKeown from our Global Economic Service about all of this last week. We were asking if markets are getting ahead of themselves in the idea that central banks are ready to ease off the brakes. And Jerome Powell's appearance on Wednesday, it's his press conference after the FOMC meeting, so suggested that in the US case, at least, that they had got ahead of themselves. Talking about Powell, why do you think he gave such a hawkish message when he stood before the media, where other banks have been at least hinting
1: that they're preparing to shift to a, a slower pace? I think it was a really interesting response because the immediate response in the markets to the, the Fed's statements was by and large positive. The equity market rallied, the bond market rallied, yields came down, but it was perceived to be dovish. Then Powell was asked a question in the press conference about how he viewed this kind of positive reaction in markets and we got this onslaught of hawkish rhetoric uh, and there's ways to go, quote unquote, in the tightening cycle. So quite clear that Powell definitely didn't want a loosening of financial conditions to be the result of this FOMC meeting. So definitely pushing back against this idea that, or, or the risk or possibility of a tightening of financial conditions. Now why is that the case? I and mean, I think Genuinely, the Fed thinks it still has more work to do. It's interesting the statement talks about the impact of, the cumulative impact of tightening so far. So there's an acknowledgement that there's still, we've yet to see the full effect of the monetary tightening that the Fed has put in place, the full effect of that. But yeah, I think it believes it still has more work to do. We've obviously had a slew of labour market data, there's some signs of a bit of cooling at the edges, but by and large, the US labor market's still extremely tight and inflation's elevated. Now, we put a put out a piece last week explaining why we thought core inflation in the US would start to fall back, particularly over the second half of next year. So I think we may not be too far away from Fed shifting down the gears in terms of the pace of tightening, but it's not there yet.
0: Uh, and I guess the point is that even if they do move down to to smaller increments in in their rate hikes, that the terminal rate could still be higher than had previously been expected.
1: Well, that's possible, I think. I mean, that was certainly the way that Powell's, Powell's press conference was written up and certainly seems to be what he was hinting at, that they may slow the pace of tightening, but in their judgment, Fed funds are going to have to go higher than they had previously expected. But look, I think we're also at the point of the tightening cycle where central bank forward guidance counts for a bit less when the guidance they've given it over the previous months and quarters has been so wrong. So you know, we've not we've been in this position before where central banks have been suggesting that they won't be raising interest rates very aggressively. Then they'd start to raise interest rates very aggressively. Now they think that in the US, rates might have to go slightly higher than they previously thought. I mean, I think that the essential point here is that Central banks, to a large extent, are still flying blind. It's a very unusual inflation shock. They're dealing with a very unusual set of circumstances. The, the Fed, at least, thinks it needs to get financial conditions tight and, and to stay tight. But I don't think it really knows exactly where the terminal rate will will be. Interestingly, Governor Bailey at the Bank of England took exactly the opposite stance on, on Thursday at the MPC meeting, basically talking down, trying to talk down some of the expectations for tightening in, in the UK market.
0: Yeah, it's quite a figure in contrast to Jay Powell's appearance, uh, Bailey. He was talking about how UK rates don't need to rise as far as the market's forecasting, and as far as we're forecasting, indeed. It's quite a different tune to what he was singing just a few weeks ago. What What's changed his mind, do you think?
1: I think the main thing that's changed his mind is that some of the strains in financial markets have eased. If you cast your mind back two or three weeks ago, we had... Big unfunded tax cuts promised by the trust government and Chancellor Kwarteng, this turmoil in the gilt market, the collapse in sterling, the imported inflation that and, and financial market tensions that would flow from all of that, which would, would have necessitated, I think, a much bigger move than we actually got on Thursday, we got 75 basis points. I think you know, we, would, we would have been looking at 100 basis points had some of those market tensions not eased. Obviously the government's changed. Prime Minister Sunak, Chancellor Hunt's taken a rather different approach to fiscal policy much more talk of fiscal rectitude. The, the, there's a fiscal event on the 17th of this month at which Chancellor Hunt is likely to outline plans to tighten fiscal policy further. Obviously, t- That's taken a lot of the strains, and a lot of the heat out of the, the UK gilt market. It means that the, the Bank of England's going to have to do less in terms of monetary tightening. I think that's the fundamental thing that has, has changed. Now, the, the real question, I think, is... Is the bank right in its judgment that the terminal rate will, will be nowhere near 5%? I think there's a good reason to think that all other things being equal, the terminal rate will be lower than we would have previously thought to be the case when we knew there was going to be a large fiscal expansion. But I don't think it's unreasonable to think that the bank rate could get at or close to 5%, given the extent of pipeline inflation pressures that we we, we know are still coming down the track, the tightness in the UK labour market, the huge hit to the UK's supply side, that's not been a feature of other major economies, um, about 900,000 people having exited the labour market. So the massive shift there, massive difference there. So the, the the Bank of England, I think, still has quite a lot of work to do.
0: And all of these decisions come under this idea of central bank pivoting and the message being that they're no longer moving in in lockstep to address the inflation challenge. We had a note out this week talking about pivoting and and, and how it's become this catch-all for the pace at which rates are rising and where rates will peak and indeed when when banks will actually cut rates. I guess according to the dictionary, that really is what the pivot is when you when you reverse course. One idea that's coming out of all of this is that the Fed is presenting a more hawkish front than other central banks. There was an immediate reaction in the dollar and in bond yields on Wednesday after Powell's comments. Our markets team is now warning the dollar could be moving in even further into overvalued territory. What risks does that present to other economies whose central banks may be considering or indeed are are now
1: downshifting? Well, there's been this challenge for central banks over the past 12 months caused by the strength of the dollar. For the US, of course, and the Fed, it helps in their inflation fights stronger dollar means bears down on imported price pressures but for other countries the flip side of a strong dollar is a weakening of their currencies against the dollar and that's important because key commodities are often priced in dollars so and many imports priced in dollars so if their currency falls against the dollar the local currency value of that goes up and that that exacerbates inflation problems So there's been this strain caused by the strength of the dollar and that's manifested itself in or has been one reason why central banks have been trying to keep pace with the Fed in terms of monetary tightening to try and ensure that their currencies don't weaken much further against the, the U.S. currency. The problem is that at some point that starts to run into domestic vulnerabilities. We spoke earlier about housing market issues and risks in Australia, Canada and some of the Scandinavian countries. Those start to come into sharper focus if you keep trying to run to keep up with the Fed. Who are tightening aggressively for domestic reasons because you're concerned about your currencies, at some point you're going to expose those domestic vulnerabilities. And I think that's the point of the tightening cycle that, that we have got to. So it's their
0: dollar and
1: our problem. Exactly. That was Neil Shearing
0: talking central banks and inflation. And you can find all the analysis we talked about on the week's decisions and what we think is coming on our website. Now, COP27 starts in the Egyptian resort town of Sharm el-Sheikh this weekend. Joe Biden, Emmanuel Macron, and Rishi Sunak are just some of the leaders expected to take part in these high-level discussions about global climate change. I spoke to David Oxley, the head of our new Climate Economic Service, about what to expect. I started by asking him to explain what COP actually
2: is and how much it matters in terms of the challenge of limiting the rise in temperatures. So COP actually stands for Conference of the Parties. And we are getting too technical, it actually relates to the governing body of any international treaty. But in the climate arena, it's become synonymous with the annual UN Climate Change Conference that takes place every year. The COPs matter because they were taken as a symbol of international cooperation on the, the climate challenge which of course affects us all so it was really the Paris Agreement was seen as very important as, as an example of all clients falling in behind the science as it were and agreeing on the need to reduce emissions considerably over the coming decades to prevent their the global temperature rising much further so the overall goal of the Paris Agreement was to maintain the increase in the global average temperature to within about 1.5 degrees, ideally, of its pre-industrial average. As to what this means for the markets and macroeconomic performance, I, I think its importance can be overstated. Certainly, COPs and this COP will get a lot of media attention over the coming weeks, but it's worth noting that we're really not going to learn anything that we don't already know from this COP. You know, countries have already signed up to numerous ambitions to reduce their greenha- net greenhouse gas emissions to, to zero, net zero, over the coming decades, some more ambitious than others. But, but overall, what we're going to learn next week is probably not going to add much to that. If, if you were going to be uncharitable, people have described COP and events like this as blah, 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 you know, they, they result in a lot of pledges and commitments and quite light in actual policy action. I think there is something to be said for that, to be honest. A lot of the times the, the goal of a COP is to come out with communiques and sort of political grandstanding, but from a markets perspective, they're really not as important as the amount of media attention they get would suggest. I don't want to give the impression that politics does not matter in, indeed it, I mean, it's crucial, but I'd argue that some of the more important political events happen away from COP. You know, we've had over the last few months, this inflation reduction Act in the U S for example, which unleashed a lot of money to be spent on renewables and other green initiatives over the coming decade. And I mean, arguably in Europe, the energy problems, energy crisis in the wake of the war in Ukraine has arguably done more to push renewables up the political agenda than anything that's really happened in COP. You know, COP can deliver long-term goals to decarbonize, but I, I think as we've seen in the past year, you know, when decarbonisation really becomes front and centre and part of the answer to help to improve energy security, I think that's a much more powerful political event that has much bigger market and macroeconomic implications. Much has been
0: made of of the preliminary guest list for COP27 and notable absences, Um, India's Modi and Vladimir Putin from Russia. But in particular, Xi Jinping isn't attending COP27. What is the significance that the world's biggest emitter of carbon dioxide isn't going to be represented by the head of state at an event like this?
2: And I think there are different opinions on this. I mean, of, uh, Xi Jinping, he didn't attend the COP26 event in Glasgow last year, which was ostensibly put down to probably, uh, problems of travelling after, uh, after the pandemic. I mean, there was a lot of discussion at the time and asking exactly the same question, and what, what does this mean? Some people pointed out and said... Well, it's hardly the end of the world. You know, you shouldn't be putting too much focus on one specific person's attendance and pointing out that China would still be sending a a substantial delegation to the talks. You know, I've got some sympathy with that view. But the biggest thing here is more to do with the symbolism. It certainly, I think it does send perhaps quite a powerful message of, This might not be completely top of the priority list in certain countries. You've just completed a report, a a
0: contribution
2: to our big project
0: on the the fracturing of the global economy, which argues that the world is coalescing around these two economic spheres, one aligned with China and one aligned with the US. How does the work on fracturing, how does that feed into this discussion about global cooperation on things like climate change?
2: Well, I think it, it really highlights the the fact that the China-led block has a lot of leverage over the supply of some of the key materials and technologies that are very much in demand as part of green transition. We mapped where the production and some of the processing of some of these key materials um or just commodities in general, uh, and how they fit in with the fracturing sort of framework you mentioned. And the key fault lines that emerged there were on some of the materials needed for the green transition. So we're talking about things like cobalt, where 70% of the world's cobalt is produced in the Democratic Republic of Congo, but At least that share, I think even more, is actually refined in China. And China controls a lot of of that production of the DRC. And and that's a problem because cobalt is one of the key elements that we need for solar panels. Similarly, rare earths are another key fault line we identified in the reports where a large proportion of the world's rare earths originate from China. So this really identified the major fault lines and some of the the geopoliticals of potential flashpoints that, that could erupt over the coming years. The the key conclusion from this was that we, we're going to see increasing demand for these green technologies and there is clear potential for the supply of some of them to be constrained, the bottlenecks in the supply to to emerge. So the key conclusion was that all of this could potentially push up the cost of the green transition, certainly for the US-led bloc, and I mean and ultimately delay it by a few years, there's a, there's a period of vulnerability of the coming years. Like as we're seeing in Europe, we're bringing forward Sort of goals to boost renewable suppliers of electricity Yeah, the onus really is on the, the supply and, and potential pinch points in that. So at an international level it seems there are very strict limits to what governments can
0: do to affect change when it comes to dealing with the climate crisis but would you accept that on a national level governments do have a role to play in, in pushing these green transitions?
2: Yes, I don't want to downplay the role that governments have. My, my main point of argument against things like COP is a lot of it really comes across as warm words and you know vague pledges and ambitions that stretch out for decades but as you say i mean as we've seen with the inflation reduction acts in the the us you know you you can get targeted packages of things like tax credits or subsidies or even mandates you know that can really affect behavior in an economy we've seen this in the obviously the, the famous example of take up of electric vehicles in Norway now that didn't happen by chance that was because there was huge subsidies thrown at them you know and and also lots of practicalities little perks so you could use them in bus lanes and not have to pay tolls and all of this so yeah there are there are definitely things that governments can do to give the green transition a good kick along i'll uh, point on the technological front, though is i think the, the minute that renewables for example become unequivocally more competitive than fossil fuels, you know, you know, we really are very close to that point now, you know, in some countries probably past that point. This is where, you know, even if governments didn't do anything, this is, you kind of reach a tipping point where, where the economic incentives are aligned, you will get change of behavior. So as a, although, yeah, we, we'd be a little bit skeptical on some of these warm words. We do consider ourselves quite. Techno optimist in the sense that technology can change very, very quickly. I-, I like the old adage that people tend to overestimate how much can change in two years, but underestimate what can happen in a decade. I think that certainly, if you look at any charts in terms of renewables or efficiency of LEDs, wholesale change happens over a decade. It's, it, yeah, decade is a decade is a long time. So we're pretty optimistic in, in what can happen over time. And say, but if governments start to pull in the same direction, and maybe not multilateralism, but sort of unilateral um, policies, they might not be optimal from a sort of global point of view. But I think this could really kick us down the road to transitioning to a greener economy relatively quickly. And that's it
0: for this episode. You can find all the research that we discussed on our website, capitaleconomics.com. Until next time, have a great week.